0: We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. On this episode, we're talking about a parasitic animal that uses aquatic animals as its host. These animals have been successful on Earth for millions of years, and luckily, I have Dr. Michael Wagner, a professor at Michigan State University, on the podcast to talk about them. So get ready to hold your breath as we go underwater to talk about lampreys. There are 43 different lamprey species, and as I said in the intro, they're parasitic. And they have long, slender bodies and kind of look like eels, but they're not closely related. And we'll talk more about what they actually are during the interview. Most lamprey species can be found in temperate regions in freshwater streams, rivers, and lakes. But there are also sea lamprey that live in the oceans in the northern hemisphere. Okay, now that we know the basics, let's hear from our lamprey expert, Dr. Michael Wagner. First, I wanted to learn about his journey to studying lampreys.
1: So I'm a broadly trained aquatic ecologist. My background is actually in marine science, working in the oceans. Um, But after I finished my undergrad degree in marine biology in Texas, um, I was burnt out on school like a lot of people are. I wanted to work. I wanted to do something. And I ended up working for the EPA. And I had this sort of life-altering experience while I was there. And it, it wasn't. It was a realization I came to later. I was, you know, twenty nothing and, and didn't really know anything at the time. But I came to realize that the agencies weren't particularly good at using science, and and the deficit wasn't the science. The deficit was the scientists, and so science wasn't there advocating um, for its use, right? Not for a particular action or outcome or policy, but that the science be used in making that decision because it requires somebody to communicate that. And to communicate it in terms that are meaningful to people who make decisions. And you can only get to that point if you sort of dedicate your career to working with those people and trying to understand how they make decisions, how they manage resources. And so it sort of shaped my career because I I wanted to go down a path that would lead to me being a scientist playing that role to the extent that I could. In agency, sort of creating the science that is, is of use, but also participating in the practice of making it useful. And so that led me to the study of invasive species in my graduate work. But it doesn't exactly tell you how I came to study sea lamprey because I was working on little invasive minnows and in mountains of Western North Carolina, having come from a marine science background. I'd never worked with lampreys, I'd never worked with great lakes, let alone lake ecosystems. And a lot of the work that we do now is sort of study how these animals use chemicals they produce to communicate. And I never worked on chemical communication. So I was singularly unqualified for the job that I was hired to do. Sort of what helped me carry the day was, I think, the ability to communicate these interests um, and sort of fit in well with where they wanted to go. And ultimately, you know, experience that's sort of directly on target is of value. In science, but it's not the critical aspect that makes somebody effective and useful in a scientific career. That's really just two things. You know, one is a trait, which is curiosity, right? Which many of us share. And the other is a vocation, sort of a willingness to dedicate a lot of your time and effort in life towards taking that curiosity and directing it into very rigorous and controlled. Um, exploration for the answer to your curiosity, um, and science offers that. And so you put those two things together, and you've got a scientist, and then that's somebody who can can come in and maybe take on things they haven't taken on before and have some success.
0: Communication in science is so important. You could do amazing research, but if you're not a good communicator, it's going to be hard to get people to listen to you. Now, let's hear about some of the research that Michael does at Michigan State University.
1: Sure, so sea lamprey are invasive in the Great Lakes. And so the interest in uh, understanding them derives from a desire to find efficient ways to control them. I'm someone who studies the behavior of fishes, right? And I'm very interested in behavioral mechanisms, sort of how animals make decisions, what the consequences of those decisions are, but more particularly, what information do they use to make those decisions? And how might we manipulate the presentation of that information in the environment to cause them to make decisions that they wouldn't otherwise do, which in this case might promote their failure, that they do worse. Um, In other cases where we want to conserve lampreys in other parts of the world, the same sort of manipulations can be performed to help those species. So I'll give you an example. One of the fascinating things about sea lamprey is that they spend almost the entirety of their lives at night. They're nocturnal species and they're mostly solitary. And so, they, do, they have this fascinating life, you know, where they migrate out into oceans or here the lakes. Hundreds and hundreds of kilometers, maybe thousands of kilometers of movement. They attach on to fish. They get drug around by their prey. Um, and after doing that for a couple of years, they drop off. They have no idea where they are. And yet they have to navigate back to a coastline. They have to navigate into a river with suitable habitat and potential mates for them, all without any knowledge of what any other lamprey is doing. Because they're on their own in the dark. One of the senses that they rely on very heavily is their nose. right? And we think also sort of the ability to detect pressure. Um, And so the nose becomes important when they get to the coastline, because what they're smelling for is an odor that's released by the larvae of sea lamprey. The larvae are these cute little harmless animals that live in the sediments and streams for typically about four years. Uh, consuming organic matter, you know, sort of performing ecosystem services—they're beneficial generally in the ecosystems that they come from in this state. But because they live there for four years, they just the odors that they produce, the chemicals they put in the water, the fishes evolve to recognize, and it tells them sort of something that that's really important to them when you're trying to pick where you're going to reproduce. And so, sea lamprey are kind of like salmon in the sense that they spawn one time at the end of their life and they die. Right. No parental care. And so they're looking for a good neighborhood to raise their kids just like us. Right. So why did your parents pick the neighborhood they do if they had a choice available to them? Right. Good schools, low crime rate. What are these things? they are correlates of your future success. Right. If these things are there, my kids are likely to be successful. What this odor of the larvae do is say, hey, there's multiple generations of larvae here doing just fine. Right? It's an indication of success. So you know you're in the right place to spawn because your offspring will do well. And if other lampreys are following that same signal, they'll show up at the same place. right? So you'll have mates available to them. But like any organism, including us, if we become inordinately attentive to a single source of information, we become easier to manipulate. And so when they make these decisions about where to go, which river to enter... They are relying on these odors to be true, that if the larval odor is present, that is a good place to go. Another odor that we study very heavily is called an alarm cue, which is chemical compounds in the tissue of the animal that when it's attacked, you know, and and the skin is punctured by a predator, it's released into the water, and it labels the space that you should avoid. And so when we put these odors in the water in experiments, they'll swim towards the larval odor, they'll swim away from the alarm cue. So we can push and pull the odor in different directions. For example, when they're coming up a river and sort of all the good habitat, two tributaries come together and all the good habitat's on the left. Follow that loader and you go right into that river. It's not coming out of the other one, right? We can reinforce it by adding the alarm cue. But imagine a situation where we treat it with this lamperside and the larvae are gone. They're mostly gone. Now we can put the odor wherever we want. And so now we could guide them into a river that actually doesn't have good habitat for the offspring and let them spawn. And that reproduction is wasted. It doesn't result in any new offspring that will become parasites and eventually go out and attack the fish. And so that's a simple example of how you can manipulate the animal's decision making if you understand the information it uses to make a decision and how that information is dispersed in space. Right. So you basically create a roadmap, a chemical roadmap for them, and they follow it to the wrong place, sort of like if I screwed with your Google Maps and your phone. I could get you to go anywhere I want you to, you know, you think you're going off to the, to a pizza joint and you actually end up in, you know, <laughs> at the county courthouse or wherever I want you to go.
0: Wow. It's really amazing how we can look at a lamprey's reliance on smell and use it to help an ecosystem by making sure that they don't reproduce. And remember, in this specific habitat, they're invasive species, but they aren't invasive in their native habitats. We're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, we'll learn more about these interesting animals. The science word that I want to talk to you about today is gel electrophoresis. Gel electrophoresis is a process that scientists use to compare individuals' DNA— It uses electricity to sort the DNA by how long the strands are. If the strands align more, that means that the two individuals that you're comparing are more closely related. Okay, we're back. Now let's talk a little bit more about what lampreys are.
1: What's all around you? Almost everywhere you look and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. These are in a group called the jawless fishes, right? And jawless fishes have been around for about five hundred million years, at least at least that long. And that shows up in the fossil record. And they were pretty diverse up until about two hundred million years ago. and now there's just sort of two groups left that don't have many species. There's the lampreys and then the hagfishes, which occur in the ocean. And these sort of superficially look similar. These squishy, eel-like animals, but they're actually fairly distantly related. The Sea lamprey has been around for probably, well, in the fossil record, we know they've been around at least as long as 360 million years. Um, and that's because they have a simple, straightforward lifestyle that is successful, regardless of major changes on the planet. Their life is pretty simple. They start off, again, as these sort of little blind larvae living in sediments and rivers and eating organic matter and algae. But after about four years, they go through this metamorphosis. Sensory systems elaborate. They get eyes, right? Um, their mouth changes quite a bit. So they don't have jaws like we do. It's just sort of this round hole at the end of their face. And when they go through this metamorphosis, that hole becomes a what we call a suctorial disk. It can create suction. Right. And it becomes kind of toothy. They have these sort of rows of teeth that you can see on them that are actually made out of keratin and other materials. They're sort of like your fingernails more than like your teeth. Um, and they also get some teeth on their tongue. And so this transformation prepares them to parasitize other fish. And so now they migrate out of rivers into oceans or lakes and they start looking for a fish to attack. They attach onto the side of it and they use those teeth on the end of its tongue to drill a hole into the side of the fish. And then they live off of blood and body fluids and probably a little bit of tissue, but mostly blood feeding. And they'll do that for one to two years before they drop off and do this migration back in. So
0: they're extremely unique in how they get their food. But how do they find the fish that they're going to latch onto?
1: That's an interesting question because probably the piece of their life we know the least about is when they leave the rivers or estuaries and go out and start hunting for fish. Because, again, they're doing it at night. It's difficult to find them, because even if you catch a fish that has a lamprey on it, they'll probably drop off before you get it reeled into the boat. Um, but our suspicion is, like most things in our life, they're using odor to do it. And so if you think about it, sea lamprey you know, are migrating out of these rivers, either in the fall or early in the spring, um, sort of when water levels are rising in the river and they can sort of ride that wave of high discharge out and just get carried out into the ocean and not have to burn a lot of energy. And the suspicion is that the first thing that they're targeting are probably small fishes. Well, why small fishes? Um, Partly, I suspect, because those small fishes are often in schools of thousands to millions of individuals, which means as they swim by in bays and estuaries, um, they leave behind a big odor plume. You think about Menhaden or something like that, which they're known to attack in the ocean. There could be millions of individuals in a single school. Putting on an odor plume that might be, you know, 50 kilometers long and kilometers wide. And in fact, we find menhaden by how they change the water when they move through. Menhaden fishing uses uh, airplanes that can spot the schools and they can't see the fish. But what they can see is a huge stripe of clear water behind them because they just ate all the plankton as they went by. And so we think they follow these odor trails and then find their fish and attach to them.
0: Their ability to use their sense of smell is really awesome. So what has made lampreys so successful for such a
1: long time? I think their key adaptation is simplicity in their decision-making, that they have these few simple processes that they use to undertake these um, very difficult tasks. And, and so one of the reasons we probably haven't studied them too heavily is because they are too simple. They have too straightforward a solution to these problems, and human beings love complexity. Right? You can watch 100 nature shows on the amazing map and compass navigation of salmon and birds and how they use the magnetic fields and stars and do all these amazing things. Right, Lamprey can't do those things. Worse yet, Lamprey can't pay attention to what others are doing because, again, they're alone and in the dark. But what they can do is use um, features in the environment that don't change over time. So for example. Water depth is always shallower on the coastline than it is offshore. Same in a lake, right? There's always a slope. Sea level rise and falls during ice ages as much as two, 300 feet in the ocean. But invariably, there's a gradient. And if you swim along the bottom and sort of can sense the water pressure above you, this animal's negatively buoyant. It spends a lot of time in the bottom. Then if you just sort of swim in the direction in which the pressure is going down, you're going shallower. And that'll get you to the coastline. So there's this fixed environmental gradient. That gets them to the shore. Um, And so we've done studies with them with uh, telemetry devices in them to see them doing this in the Great Lakes. And so when they start moving at night, they start turning these big circles on the bottom, which we think is sampling across this depth gradient. And then they pick a direction to go, and that direction is usually right towards the shallow water. But then when they start heading in, they start casting in the water column. You know, they'll sort of swim up to the top and down to the bottom, up to the top, down to the bottom, just big vertical casts. And we think what they're doing there is spending more time on the surface. They periodically go down the bottom to confirm that it's getting shallower. But they also evolved, you know, in the ocean environment. So the fresher water that comes out of estuaries kind of slides out on top. It's lighter, right? Less dense.
0: An estuary is a place where fresh water and the ocean meet.
1: And so you sample up in the top and spend time on top because you're sniffing around for this odor and other odors that tell you getting close to the shore. And so once they get in, all you have to do to find every estuary on the, the western Atlantic coast, the east coast of the United States, is whenever you hit the shore, just turn right. Right. And then Coriolis, which is how water moves as a function of the planet, turns, causes the plumes out of these estuaries to turn south they come out so if you hit the coast and go north you'll hit every one of these plumes and so then you smell what you're looking for and that pulls you into the right estuary and then you follow it through again and you're smelling the exact same patterns looking for the river plume coming in the estuary that tells you you've hit the right river and then you follow these odors home it's simple and because and now a lot of this is we some of this we understand and some of these are just hypotheses that we're still working on and testing so this is my belief Um, partially as well as data that we have to confirm some of these behaviors. So I just want to make that clear to your listeners. We haven't worked all of this out. It's an exciting problem to go after because simple solutions are fascinating, right? And in some ways, it's the holy grail, right? You always want these simple, elegant solutions to complex problems, even though, again, we're fascinated by complexity. Um, But it probably explains why the species has been around for hundreds of millions of years doesn't look like it's physically changed all that much in that time because it has these simple, straightforward strategies for doing three things that every organism has to do. Finding the resources to survive, not becoming a resource for something else. And if you're successful at those two things, you get to reproduce.
0: That's such an interesting point because sometimes we think that if an organism is more complex, that means it's more successful. But sometimes simplicity is the best way to survive in your environment. Earlier, Michael was talking about how some lampreys can be invasive in certain ecosystems.
1: It's important to first know what an invasive species is, right? It's not a particularly nice word, right? Nobody gets excited if they go to the doctor and he's like, good news, you're going to have a procedure and it's going to be invasive, right? So it's a term that has a negative connotation to it. There's a reason for that. It's not a biological classification. Right. An invasive species is an introduced species, a species that came from somewhere else and was introduced as a consequence of our behavior or directly by us. Right. So we put it there on purpose or it hitched a ride like on a boat or a plane or something like that and arrived. That makes it non-native. That makes it introduced. That doesn't make it invasive. To become invasive, it has to this population has to grow. And the most important point is it has to cause harm to something that we care about. Right. So the assignment of an invasive species label to an organism, and typically a population, right? It's a population of a species that's in a place that it didn't get to naturally um, and it's now causing problems, is defined because we decide what's a problem. Right? If it harms something that we care about, like sea lamprey attacking fish in the Great Lakes that have great economic, ecological, and cultural value to the peoples of that region, then we decide that the lamprey is harmful. And so it's that introduced, becomes widespread, and causes harm to something that we care about is what makes a species an invasive species. But again, it's not an invasive species. More accurately, it's an invasive population. Because everywhere else the sea lamprey is in its native range, this is not a problem. And all other lampreys in their native ranges, this is not a problem. But sometimes the brush paint's a little too wide. In places in the world where they're trying to conserve lampreys, native species, even in places where in the United States, where we're trying to conserve sea lamprey in its native range or Pacific lamprey out out west, it helps for people to understand that it's a value judgment that we impose Um, and an important one. Right. But it doesn't apply to all the species of lampreys and it doesn't even apply to all the populations of sea lamprey.
0: I'm so glad that Michael brought this up because it's important to remember that no species is invasive in its native habitat. So having that negative connotation attached to that animal can be extremely harmful to their populations. So what are some of the reasons why lampreys are important to the ecosystems that they are native to?
1: Why do we value species is, is an important question and their ecological role is one, right? But if we view it sort of the lens through the lens of direct benefit to us, sometimes it can be sort of hazy. So, you know, they I think the deeper question is whether any one species has lesser or greater inherent value than another. And so I I think largely the answer to that question should be no, um, particularly in the face of the fact that we're losing so much biodiversity on the planet that we should strive to keep those that we have because we have great opportunities to learn from them. But in the ecosystems where they're native, particularly during this larval phase, when they're in the rivers, they're beneficial because they're like many organisms. They're taking energy that's available at the bottom of the food web, in the form of in the form of detritus, breaking down plant material and algae, and converting it into animal biomass, which then can be consumed by other predators in the system. And so it sort of helps fuel the ecosystem's food web. In that perspective, but the other interesting thing that happens is when they head offshore and feed, they get much much larger. When they're leaving these rivers, they're little pencils. And when they come back, especially in the ocean run, they might be a meter long fish, right? they don't, not as common, but they do get that big. And they acquired all that biomass out in the ocean. And when they migrate back in and spawn and die, they leave it behind in the river. And so it becomes an energetic supplement to the systems as well. But the value of them to the ecosystem is that other organisms have evolved to take advantage of their presence, right? And so the ecosystem, as we understand it, functions within present. And that's sort of the fundamental argument for preserving native biodiversity wherever you can. So they're really an
0: integral part of the food web. Next, I wanted to know what we can do to help lampreys.
1: I think number one on the list, you know, the starting point is always awareness, right? Be aware of sort of what's going on in these ecosystems and, and why it's important um, to, to care for these animals. I think those who work on the conservation of native lampreys or, or even sea lamprey only in its native range would argue that because the species isn't commercially exploited um, by us, that they're not paid a lot of attention to. We don't have a deep personal connection with a lot of these animals. One, because people don't find them as cute as I do. But if you saw the larvae, you might change your mind. But the other thing is when an animal lives its life at night, we sit in underwater. Now, those are two places that, two circumstances that people don't usually like to find themselves in, right? And so we just don't interact with them a lot. But a lot of the Native American cultures in the U.S. and the First Nations and Canada do have deep cultural connections to these species as part of the ecosystems and want to maintain them, right? As part of the natural world. And so I think the first step for most people is learning about the, the types of species that aren't the spectacular ones that are talked about all the time, right? The whole of the ocean is not filled with salmon and tuna and nothing else, right? These other fishes are out there. And the preservation of biodiversity requires that we attend to their presence and think about them. But the other is to think about your values and sort of how you consider species and ecosystems. One of the things I think I suspect that's happening, if it is, it would be fascinating. And I don't know, you'd have to ask a sociologist. But I suspect people's values are going to change over time about at least introduced species, if not invasive species. Because folks your age have probably never known an ecosystem that didn't have a whole lot of introduced species in it. right? That's the world now. We've sort of spread animals around and plants quite a bit. And so while the generation that taught me very much valued sort of a backward looking, let's restore to a historical condition and try to preserve as much of that biodiversity and functioning ecosystems as we can, it might be a bit different now where the world's been repainted you know, by this biological rain that we've sort of brought down on it and modifying landscapes and habitats and everything else. And we need a, a new vision forward about what the world can and should look like. And that's informed by people's values. And so if you care about native species where they're native, you know, learn about them and participate in the discussion. Managers, management agencies are always looking for to understand what it is that people want because they're typically not charged with for example, regulating natural resources in and of itself. They're charged with that because people decided that the preservation of those things are valued to them. And that preservation is not just of the species. It's also of the opportunities that the native species provide. So why do we work to preserve lamprey on the West Coast? Because of its great cultural and ecological value. Why do we work to reduce the population and manage it in the Great Lakes? Because it causes harm to the native species, uh, particularly things like lake travel and whitefish in the system that did not evolve to withstand the attacks of sea lamprey that are vulnerable to them. Both Both actions are in service to the same goal, right? What it is that we want to do to protect our ecosystems and maintain our connection to the land, to the water, and to the organisms that are in there. And so that's something that involves the animals and science and policy and management, but also people and values. And those things only enter the process, sort of sort of the cycle back to my first experiences at EPA, if those voices are at, the, are at the table and those voices are raised, that people actually speak. And so that's what I think people can do. Find out how these decisions are made, find out what their role can be, and involve yourself.
0: That's why it's vital to educate the people around you about animals like lamprey. Who you might not have even known were a thing before this episode. I want to thank Michael for coming onto the podcast because that interview was so informative and it helped me put things like invasive species into a different perspective. If you want to help lampreys and their habitats, you should check out Oceanwise, Great Lakes Fishery Commission, and American Rivers. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of lampreys. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife or on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On wildlife.